Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikvot Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvotisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Avinu, our Father, uh, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Ruach, your Holy Spirit. We pray that your Word would go forth from Zion to encourage those who hear it, um, wherever they are, O God, in their journey with you, that you would build them up, um, that you would build up your community, O God, through the hearing of your word, and in Yeshua's name we pray, amen. So, uh, there's an old tale about a U.S. Navy captain uh, interacting with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland on a very foggy evening. U.S. ship. Please divert your course 0.5 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. The Canadians reply, recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. U.S. ship. This is the captain of a U.S. Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadian reply, no, I say again, you divert your course. U.S. ship again. This is the aircraft carrier USS Coral Sea. We are a large warship of the U.S. Navy, uh, and I am a captain. I have uh, 10 stripes, and uh, I have 1,000 years of experience, and uh, you need to divert your course right now. Canadian reply, well, this is a lighthouse, so your move. Speaking of uh, course correction, the Messianic organization First Fruits of Zion, uh, a few years ago, they made a course correction in their theology. And this is no easy task to do. It requires a real ability to examine your own assumptions, and uh, it, it requires a strong dose of humility, and it requires healthy covenantal relationships, to be able to set course for a new destination and bring everyone on your ship, you know, as, much, as many as possible to this new destination and not have anyone, uh, as few people as possible, jumping off the ship, abandoning ship. We don't want that. So what was the theology that First Fruits of Zion used to have and that many Messianic groups still adhere to? Well, uh, I'd like to start by sharing one of the major texts to promote this theology, and it's found actually in this week's Parsha, in the portion for this week, in Numbers 15, verses 13 through 16. This is what it says. Every citizen is to do these things in the way, in this way when presenting an offering made by fire as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. If a foreigner stays with you, or whoever may be with you through all your generations, and he wants to bring an offering made by fire 
as a fra- fragrant aroma for Adonai, he is to do the same as you. For this community, there will be the same law or the same Torah for you as for the foreigner living with you. This is a permanent regulation throughout all your generations. The foreigner is to be treated the same way before Adonai as yourselves. The same Torah and standard of judgment will apply to both you and the foreigner living with you. So this passage has been used to promote and support what is known as a one-law theology. Essentially, that there is one law and Torah application for both Jews and non-Jews or Gentiles. And that there is no longer a need for Jew-Gentile distinction. And that all Christians everywhere need to follow all of the Torah. That is, keeping kosher and celebrating the feasts and circumcision. And if they do not do this, that they are in error. So this is what the theology says. And there are some Hebrew roots congregations and Messianic Havara groups that have this stance. However, the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations, the UMJC, and Tikkun, both of our umbrella organizations, as well as uh, the MJAA, that's uh, another major national Messianic Jewish organization, have all rejected this theology. And... Uh, First Fruits of Zion that I mentioned earlier, they have recanted, they have abandoned this one law position in favor of another approach. What is this other approach, you might be wondering? Well, let me answer that question with another question. Jews like to do that, right? Why does it matter, right? Can't we all just get along I mean, why does this theology matter? You know, when I, uh, when I prepare a sermon, um, I try to get a sense from the Lord of what he wants me to say. And so um, I, was, I came across this passage in the Parsha, and I had a sense that this would be a good uh, encouragement to our community. And uh, I would say that having a good, balanced theology, it does indeed matter very much. And it is instrumental in God's people moving forward in the work of the kingdom. Our theology, in fact, has implications on how we walk out our faith and, of course, the redemptive work of God in the New Covenant context. Um, This past week, I got to chat with Asher Intrader, uh, one of the fathers of the Messianic Jewish movement and uh, one of the leaders of Tikkun International. He now lives in Israel. He's involved in a lot of Arab, Palestinian, Christian, and Messianic Jewish reconciliation work. And they do restoration, uh, unity, they uh, pray together, and they partner together in worship for the kingdom of God. It's a really beautiful thing. Uh, what he told me is that um, before he talks about the theology of the land with an Arab Christian or perhaps the theology of the covenants um, or any of that stuff, he starts at the very beginning, right? That's important. Remember this? Let's start at the very beginning, a very good place to start. When you read, you begin with A, B, C, when you, in theology, you begin with God loves me, 
Very nice. The hills are alive. Sorry. <clears throat> what was I talking about? Oh, yes. The beginning. So Rabbi Asher told me that before he talks about anything else, he talks about God's love. That is, he doesn't talk, start with the land promises or controversial things like that, but God's love. That is, we are all created in God's image. Amen? Do I need to say that again? I'll say it again. We are all created in God's image, and we are beloved, and we have innate value as his creation and his children. All nations share that. This comes, of course, from the foundational texts in the first chapters of Scripture. That is Genesis. Our value and our worth come from being made in his image. We are his creation, and our purpose and our calling flow out of that identity to reflect the goodness of God. The thing is, after we affirm our primary identity, and once we have that squared away, we can then affirm some of the secondary things, right? Uh, identity markers like being male or female. That is, of course, part of the creation narrative. Being a par- part of a particular ethnos or nation, being Jewish or not. The first is of primary importance, that we are equal in worth and value. And the second is of secondary importance, right? No surprise there. There are distinctions and differences, and that there is a beautiful, diverse array of humanity, which God has defined early in the scriptures, if you read through Genesis. These secondary markers are not erased in the kingdom of God, but neither do they ever become primary. They don't ever become primarily important, but they are also not erased. Something like Jewish identity, it has its proper place and calling in the kingdom of God. The main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. You heard that, right? I learned that in my uh, homiletics class. I took a preaching class, and that's what he said. you got to keep the main thing the main thing, right? We want to major in the majors. That's very important. So from here, from that standpoint, we can start to talk about the distinct roles and calling in the creation narrative, which uh, I, would, I would describe as a theology of distinction and mutual blessing. This is the idea that God creates, according to his good purpose, distinctions or differences in his creation. So think about the land and the sea, right? There's a distinction. There's a line that he drew between them, and you have the six days of creation and the day of rest, right? You have Israel and the nations in the Genesis narrative, right? And uh, all of these, the purpose of these distinctions is always, always for mutual blessing. They're to bless each other, right? You have the six work, work days, right? That blesses the Shabbat, and the Shabbat blesses the other days. If you just have the six days, right, what would happen? You get burnt out, right? You get tired. If you just had Shabbat, You wouldn't get anything done. They they say, what is this lazy guy doing, right? So they need each other, right? And that's the idea. It's mutual blessing. God created the nation of Israel from 
that, that is the Jewish people from Abraham to be a unique people that would bring blessing to all nations. There's a throughness to the scriptural narrative. There is supposed to be a harmony of differences. That is, unity, but not uniformity, right? We have a unity in our congregation, although we are not all the same, right? And that is the picture of what God wants. Is the entire orchestra comprised of oboists? No. Is your entire body made up of only ears? <laughs> There's some groans at that, yeah. No. Is the godly design of marriage in Scripture only one gender? If you look at the narrative, you would say, no, there's a, there's a distinction and mutual blessing there, okay? These distinctions are always intended for mutual blessing, and this is one of the cornerstones of Messianic Jewish theology. Leviticus 20, verses 22 through 26, it outlines the reason for, one of the reasons for the Torah itself, okay, and uh, the regulations, and in this case, it mentions uh, kosher law, and it says, you are to observe all my regulations and rulings and act on them so that the land to which I am bringing you will not vomit you out. Do not live by the regulations of the nation which I am expelling ahead of you, because they did all these things, which is why I detested them. But to you, I have said, this is to Israel, you will inherit their land. I will give it to you as a possession, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am Adonai, your God, who has set you apart. Interesting. Set you apart from other peoples. Therefore, you are to distinguish between clean and unclean animals. This is the reason for the kosher laws. And between clean and unclean birds. Do not make yourselves detestable with an animal, bird, or reptile that I have set apart for you to regard as unclean. Rather, you people are to be holy for me. Another word for set apart. Because I, Adonai, am holy. I have set you apart from the other peoples so that you can belong to me. Now, with this overall idea in mind and what God is doing in the scriptures, let's take again a look at this week's Parsha. Perhaps we can see it again with new eyes. As a reminder, Numbers 15 verse 16, the end of it says, the same Torah and standard of judgment will apply to both you and the foreigner living with you. Of course, the best way to understand any scripture is the context in which it is found and the meaning of the words. Uh, the context here is not all nations, right? But it's those who have joined with Israel as, it says, a foreigner living with you. That's one word in the Hebrew. Does anyone know what that word is? Ger, yes. Hager. And a ger um, is a word for a resident alien or those that kind of joined with Israel. And uh, the word in the Greek version of the Tanakh, also known as the Septuagint, is proselytos, from which we get the word proselyte. Okay, right. This is a special status. It's similar to, it's not exactly like, but it's similar to uh, non-Jews in a Messianic Jewish congregation or in a Messianic Jewish movement. Uh, the context here also is about 
sacrifices in the temple, saying that there is one correct way to do it for both the native Israelite and the proselyte in their midst. But it does not imply a universal Torah application of all of the Torah to all nations. That's not what it's saying, right? It's very specific. Can we understand two things simultaneously? One, first and foremost, as I said, God loves all nations and people equally, and we are equally valued by our Creator. We understand that, right? We have that in our hearts. And two, within that equality of love and value, there are distinct callings and gifts and markers of identity. These things, these two things, they can and they do and they should go together. Not all of the Israelites were priests. So some of the Torah only applies to the priests, right? There's some laws that don't apply to all the Israelites. Not all of the Israelites were women, right? If I were back there in the day, the laws of cleansing, the nidah, right? That would not apply to me. It only applies to the women. Not all of us have the same vocation or calling. I have authority to teach the Torah from the Bema, but I can't uh, make an arrest, I can't uh, perform surgery. I can't uh, pilot a fighter jet. And that's a good thing, right? Who here wants me to take out your gallbladder? Any, okay, we see some, uh, some uh, Mishigas over there, but the uh, <laughs> vast majority know that is not a good plan. Okay? So we understand that there are distinct callings. So what is the positive part of this one-law theology? There are some good things about it. And why would an organization like First Fruits of Zion initially embrace this and, and take this um, before later abandoning it? Well, this is the testimony of Boaz Michael, who is the head of First Fruits of Zion. Quote, When we first began to teach Torah... We were swept away with the realization that the Torah had not been canceled by the gospel, that Messiah did not end the Torah, and that God's covenant with his people Israel is ongoing. We would affirm all of these things, right, as a Messianic Jewish community. It was right there in the Gospel of Matthew, staring us in the face. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, right, but to fulfill them. Our ministry was founded on this revelation. We cautiously began to suggest to our readers that perhaps the Torah was not the odious bondage of legalism, right? You're not under the law anymore, that Christian theology had led us to believe. Perhaps there was some merit and value in the Torah, the commandments. We took it a step further and suggested that perhaps Jewish and Gentile believers should consider implementing the Torah into their lives on some level. We encourage believers in Messiah to take hold of the commandments, unquote. And then later they continued along that line and then said that all, all believers, Jews and Gentiles, should, right? Not just could take hold of, the, of all the commands, but should. In other words... This idea reinforces the good part that God's Torah, it's still applicable. It still has meaning in the new covenant area. The Torah is not done away with, 
as some people teach and believe, right, in the historic church, there's that idea. The Torah, the law is good and still valid. Amen? We affirm this. Okay. So that's a good thing. The, the issue is it takes this to an extreme view. So why do we want to first affirm God's love for all people and then secondarily to affirm Jewish covenantal calling to keep the Torah? Why do we at Tikvat Israel not have a one-law theology? Well, Rabbi David Rudolph has outlined eight reasons that this theology could be damaging. Number one, it preaches a different gospel, which is uh, mentioned in Galatians 1.6, by claiming that Gentile Christians have to live like Jews in order to be faithful to God. Remember, this is something that Paul thought for with his pen to, uh, to, to say that you do not have to be circumcised and take on Jewish identity. It is anti-Jewish because it opposes Jewish particularity, that is, Jewish calling. It is anti-Christian because it opposes Gentile Christian particularity and claims that the church is off-base if it does not live out the, the lifestyle of Israel. It is a form of replacement theology, otherwise known as supersessionism, um, because it ultimately leads to the church taking over Israel's identity and the Jewish people losing their distinct identity. Remember, we want to maintain those. After we have established that we're all equally loved by God, we want to maintain those identity markers. It causes division in Messianic synagogues and in Christian churches. It is energized by a a critical spirit and a Gnostic-like quest for secret knowledge. It is based on pseudo-scholarship. And the last, it leads to weirdness and strange teachings. Uh, In other words, uh, Gentiles dressed up like Orthodox Jews, the belief that all Christians are part of the tribes of Israel, the view that Paul is a false apostle, a false teacher, the rejection of the, the... godness, the divinity of Yeshua, or the triune nature of God. Some of these are, you get into weird stuff um, if you follow this to its logical extreme. Again, looking broadly, some of the overall goals of the New Covenant writings, when we look at what is the New Covenant saying, okay, it shows unity, unity in the body of Messiah, especially between Jews and Gentiles. It shows the moral application of Torah for all nations. If you read through the New Covenant, what are they talking about? They're talking about sexual purity. They're talking about justice. They're talking about uh, how to live in a community and love your neighbor. These are the primary things in the New Covenant. How then shall we live? If you read through the letters. Amen? We want to keep the main thing the main thing. The moral application of the Torah for all nations is in the New Covenant. And the restoration of all things under the rulership of Yeshua the Messiah is, of course, in the New Covenant. That being said, we don't want to take this distinction too far. We don't want to major in the minors, right? We don't want to overemphasize Jewish distinctiveness. After all, the vast majority of Torah commandments and the purposes of the Torah apply to everybody, right? What does the Torah say? Honor your parents. Do restorative justice. It says to love God and love your neighbor. 
Surely those are applicable to all people. Amen? Okay. So we don't want to make the secondary thing, the uniqueness of the Jewish people, into the main thing. Moreover, we understand God has called non-Jews to Messianic congregations, such as ourselves. Very similar to the Gair or the proselyte in the Scriptures. Neither Tikvot Israel nor, I think, any Messianic community would even exist without non-Jews. They play a very vital role in, in the community. But we want to encourage this to be thought of as a calling for individuals, rather than imposing a Messianic Jewish lifestyle on all peoples everywhere. Again, there is a balance to it. Um, I might have to go into some more specifics in another sermon, but suffice it to say here that there is much of the Torah which applies to all people, and that Messianic Judaism has, will have, and should always have non-Jews who are called to this movement. It's very important. The kingdom of God went into fullness to the nations around Acts chapter 10, right? That was the first time in the redemption history of Scripture that the kingdom of God really went out to the nations. And uh, it's the book of Acts, right? And, And even later. There are, however, hints of this restoration of all nations to God found in the Tanakh, right? Because God, of course, loves all nations, as we said. So let's check out chapter 15 of Acts. It's a little bit long, but I, I thought it would be helpful for us to read through this. You, you still with me? Okay. But some men came down from Yehuda to Antioch and began teaching the brothers. You cannot be saved unless you undergo berit milah, that's circumcision or the mark of Jewish identity, in the manner prescribed by Moshe. This brought them into no small measure of discord and dispute with Shaul, that's Paul, and Barnabas. So the congregation assigned Shaul, Barnabas, and some of themselves to go and put this she'ilah, this question, before the emissaries and the elders in Jerusalem. After being sent off by the congregation, they made their way through Phoenicia and Shomron, recounting in detail how, God, how the Gentiles, the nations, had turned to God. And this news brought great joy to the brothers. So God was at work in the nations. Finally, this was a restoration thing that was happening in the new covenant. It was amazing. On arrival in Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the Messianic community, including the emissaries and the elders, and they reported what God had done through them. But some of them, those who had come to trust, were from the party of the Perushim, the Pharisees. And they stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, give them the mark of Jewish identity, and direct them to observe the Torah of Moshe. The emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter. After lengthy debate, Kepha, who's Kepha? Peter, got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back, God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the goyim, the nations, should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving the Ruach HaKodesh to them, just as he did to us, right? Affirming God's moving in the nations. That is, he made no distinction between us and them. And here the word distinction means that there's no difference in God's love and his kingdom working in them. 
but he cleansed their heart by trust. We're all saved by trust through faith. Amen? So why are you putting God to the test now by placing a yoke on the neck of the Talmudim, the students, which neither our fathers nor we have the strength to bear? No, it is through the love and kindness of the Lord Yeshua that we trust and are delivered, and it's the same with them. It's the same with all nations. We're all saved by grace through trusting in Yeshua. Then the whole assembly kept still as they listened to Barnabas and Shaul tell what signs and miracles God had done through them among the Gentiles. Yaakov, that's uh, James, broke the silence to reply, Brothers, he said, hear what I have to say. Shimon has told in detail what God did when he first began to show his concern for taking them from among the Goyim, a people to bear his name. And the words of the prophets are in complete harmony with this, for it is written, After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the fallen tent of David. I will rebuild its ruins. I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. That is, all the goyim, the nations who have been called by my name, says Adonai, who is doing these things. All this has been known for ages. Therefore, my opinion is that we should not put obstacles in the way of the nations who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. Those are the four uh, laws that they put upon all nations who were followers of Yeshua. Uh, For from the earliest times, Moshe has had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. So the text that is mentioned here by James, or Yaakov, he's quoting Amos. And it refers to the tent of David. What is the tent of David? This is the kingdom of the Messiah. David, of course, representing the the Messiah, messianic figure. And it mentions all of the nations coming to know the God of Israel. And it mentions the restoration of the Jewish people, which is connected to the restoration of the nations. These are linked in the scriptures. And specifically, the nation of Edom is mentioned in Amos, in Amos chapter 9, okay? The Torah, Torah, of course, originally had no vowels, and uh, Edom, how would we spell this? Aleph, Dalid, Vav, Mem. And as Wayne mentioned, sometimes the Vavs, you know, disappear, and the Yods, right? And sometimes it's spelled like this, Aleph, Dalid, Mem. Okay, and uh, not only does this say Edom, Adam, what else does it say? It says Adam, Adam. And what is Adam? That's humanity, right? So we understand that God has a heart for all humanity. This Adam, Adam has been interpreted as a stand-in for all nations coming to know the Lord. Amen? So, in other words... All nations are going to worship God in unity, and each one is going to walk in their calling and their identity, and that is connected to the redemption of all things under the Mashiach. So, what are the lessons that we can take away from a balanced theology of distinction and mutual blessing? I have four for you, okay? Let's take a look. Number one, the faithfulness of God. Okay? Remember, if God is faithful 
to his promises to the Jewish people to bless them, to keep them distinct, and to work through them to bless all nations. If he's faithful to that, then he will be faithful to everyone because he's faithful, right? But if he is, has rejected the Jewish people or if he has said, well, you know, I don't really think they need to be a people anymore. I'm, I'm kind of done with these people and uh, I'll just use this other group of people. What does that say about God's character? That's not the God of the Scriptures. The God of the Scriptures is faithful. If he's faithful to Israel, he'll be faithful to all nations through Yeshua the Messiah. Number two, God's individualized love for all people. This means that God, he has made each person, all of you, unique for a a, a specific reason, right, and a calling. He's given you your, your eye color, your hair color, right? Although maybe it's changed, you know, or the presence of the hair has changed, but he, he designed you that way, right? He, I think he designed my, my baldness pattern, I could say, right? I mean, my wife likes it. She thinks it's cute, so there's got to be a purpose for it, right? He's made all of us unique, right, for a specific reason. He loves very specifically. He loves you, and he loves how he made you. Amen? And your calling is unique. Even if you're a twin, right, and you look the same, you, you have a specific calling on your life. Number three, world redemption under Messiah and unity. There's a priority in the scriptures for unity in the body of Messiah, right? Remember, Yeshua, his final prayer on the earth in John 17 was that they would, we would be one as he was one with the Father, that echadness, that the people that were hearing his words would be one with the people that would hear it later. And all the people that were hearing it were Jews. And all the people, many of the people that would hear it later were not. And so God's heart revealed to us in John 17 is that there would be unity in the body of Messiah between Jew and Gentile specifically. And uh, number four, we understand course correction is hard, right? Remember my story in the beginning. It's hard to make a course correction, um, but sometimes it's necessary. And I'm going to close with a quote from Boaz Michael again. This is the end of his article uh, from First Fruits of Zion. Sometimes it's hard to change direction. It's always hard to admit to being wrong, especially in matters of religious conviction. A ship's captain must occasionally correct the ship's course to bring it safely to harbor. And I would add, you know, so you don't hit a a lighthouse. When he begins the voyage, he sets out in the right direction. He, for example, he knows he needs to sail to the east. And as he draws closer to his destination, however, he needs to correct his course from time to time in order to avoid the hazards at sea and in order to safely arrive at his destination. Imagine how foolish it would be for such a captain to stubbornly refuse to make any course corrections during the voyage because he is convinced his original easterly direction uh, was right, that that was the right direction. There may have been a great deal that was correct, about that direction, but not everything. When my colleagues and I corrected our theological course to steer away from a theology that did not make a distinction between Jewish people and Gentile believers, 
We did so in the best interests of the crew, the passengers, and everyone waiting at our destination. I realize that many of our readers still believe that we made a terrible miscalculation and we are now lost at sea. But I beg you, in the name of our master, to ask yourself, where do my beliefs lead? Is this the biblical direction, or is it possible that I have misunderstood something? What is the outcome for me, my children, my family, my community, my testimony, and my relationship to the Jewish people if I stay on this course? May our master explain this vessel, may our master captain this vessel and steer us all safely ashore in his coming kingdom, unquote. Isn't that amazing? God is so good. God is so good. My prayer is for all of us to be rooted in God's love and to work toward redemption and unity with an understanding of calling and covenant distinction, and mutual blessing. Amen? Amen. All right. Let's pray. Abba, you are a good father to us, and you um, are loving, compassionate, and you are indeed faithful. And uh, I pray that this message would be a blessing to your people, to this community, to all who hear it, um, and that you would indeed, as Boaz Michael prayed, uh, continue to guide us and lead us Uh, in our theology and our thinking, that we can grow more and more and reflect your love and reflect um, the principles in your word, O God, and be a light uh, in the community uh, where you've called us to be, O God. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Amen.